Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 11, Paradise Gardening with Joe Hollis of Mountain Gardens. Joe Hollis has been gardening the same plot of land in western North Carolina for almost 50 years. We speak with him about his concept of paradise gardening, about his community apothecary, how he lives with little money, and how climate change has affected his garden. We also want to thank all of the listeners who contacted us with their feedback. We really appreciate it. And if you would like to offer feedback, we'd welcome your email at plantcunning at gmail.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Here we go. Thank you, Joe Hollis, for being on the Plant Cunning Podcast. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I first uh, heard about you maybe seven years ago on YouTube, and you were just so interesting with all these plants and I was studying permaculture and you look like such a wise uh, green wizard. And I wondered, you know, did you just appear that way or how did you become what you are? Uh, I'm self-educated. I uh, never studied botany in college or uh, anything like that. I went off in the, is my volume okay? Yeah, your volume's great. Okay, so I graduated from college and joined the Peace Corps because the Vietnam War was on and I didn't want to go there. And they sent me to Borneo, a tribal kind of culture. I spent three years traveling up and down a river, visiting village schools, et cetera, et cetera. And wow, that's really uh, cool. It was pretty much a life-changing experience in regards to uh, noticing that these people were quite healthy and happy and had like about 5% of the material wealth that most Americans have. And when I came back to America and set foot in a mall for the first time, it just totally blew me away with the amount of stuff, i.e. garbage, that Americans surround themselves with. Uh, I mean, I was always kind of concerned about issues around, uh, well, at that time it was nuclear war, basically peace, basically unequal distribution of wealth around the planet. And it just brought home to me even more uh, how unnecessary it, and in fact detrimental it is for us to be so affluent. Uh, we are not any happier than these poor third world people. We're not any healthier than these poor third world people. In fact, we suffer from all kinds of mental distress. With like, God knows how much large a percentage of the population is addicted to opiates, etc. cetera. Uh, it's absurd. Like we're, we're trashing the planet and we're trashing ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so that, uh, so in response to that, I tried to come up with a solution. I like my life is simply devoted to trying to solve 
the problems that are happening on this planet. I, I have no other agenda. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be powerful. I don't want any of that. I just want to make some kind of contribution to this tragic situation we're in, which is taking us all down, taking America down, taking the whole planet down with us. And what I came up with was this concept of paradise gardening, which is basically that the problem is that we've essentially lost our niche. We don't know where we are. We don't know what we're doing on this planet. Uh, we have a role to play on this planet, which is, I call, I take from uh, Eugene Odom, ecosystem manager. Like we're one of these, uh, what do you call keystone species yeah. in the ecosystem of the planet. Like we have a very, very important role to play, and we've abdicated it. Instead, we're just turned in on ourselves. We're just trying to make ourselves happy in a kind of totally delusional way. Uh, so I worked up this kind of philosophy concept of what's happening on Earth, which is basically that there are two superorganisms battling for control. There's the genuine superorganism called Gaia, which is a whole planetary ecosystem that everything is a part of and contributes to. Everything can plays a part in Gaia and then the turn is rewarded with all the things it needs. Whether we're talking about a bacteria or a plant or an animal or whatever, they just do whatever they do and they get back whatever they need and they contribute by doing whatever they do to the well-being of the whole planet. Instead, uh, the human species has bowed out of that and set up our own separate little superorganism, which I call civilization. You can call it the economy, you can call it, I don't know, I have a few other names for it. But basically the whole human uh, superorganism is based around money, the circulation of money. And you take your part, i.e. you get a job, the best job you can, and you work all day and you get some money and then you go out and spend that money to fulfill your needs as opposed to, let's say, a bear. It just goes up, gets up in the morning and snuffles around in the woods and finds what food it needs and shits here and there, eats its berries and goes over here and shits out its berry seeds, etc. <laughs> and yeah. contributes to the well-being of everything. Instead, this uh, superorganism called civilization is basically eating Gaia and turning it into money. Uh, and that's what we're all being a part of. When you get a job, when your life depends on money, you're just participating in this, what I call it a cancerous, I think it's quite obvious that it's a cancerous. Civilization is a cancer within the body of Gaia. So it's gobbling up all the resources and it's polluting everything with all of our crap that we excrete out wherever, uh, and that's the problem. That yeah. is, I, that's my analysis that that's the problem. It's, it's civilization versus taking part in Gaia. And we have, it's a choice that all of us can make. Like which superorganism, because no man is an island, we can't live by ourselves. We need a life support system from one or another of these superorganisms. Either nature, either we're going to uh, key our, our existence, we're going to hinge our existence on Gaia, 
i.e. nature, you know, the natural system, the, the plants, the animals, whatever it's out there, or we're going to join up with civilization and get a good job and have a nice house and a car in the garage, et cetera, et cetera, and pay our taxes and contribute to this disastrous situation that's happening on Earth. It's a pretty stark choice that we have to make. And not very many people are making the right choice as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Because everything that's going on keys us to get the best job you can, get the nicest house in the nicest neighborhood you can, get the best car you can afford. Da, da, da. That's success. So did you have all this thought out uh, when you started Mountain Gardens? No, I worked it out as I started Mountain Gardens. Uh, but it was pretty obvious to me at the initial point that what was going to be important was to key our lives back to nature. The details of it took me a while. I did a lot of reading. I do a lot of reading. That's how I get my information. I've got a very large library, and I spend a lot of time in libraries, or I used to, before they all closed down. So I spent a lot of time working out this philosophy. And I, I wrote it up first in an essay called Paradise Gardening, which you can look at out of my website, mountaingardensherbs.com. And then I wrote several successive versions. And in the process, at the moment, I'm in the process of trying to work up a little booklet uh, with all my thoughts about Paradise Gardening. I hope to get that out sometime this winter. Uh, Great. So that's what my whole life is about, is just working up this philosophy. And and the idea of this philosophy is essentially that it's something that anyone can do. So uh, uh, an aspect of this is that it's just trying to work out, is there a way for a person to live on Earth that benefits the planet, that benefits our species, and that benefits me personally? And if you can find a way to live that accomplishes all those three things, I'm calling that Paradise Garden. So how did Mountain Gardens begin? You started in the 70s? Pardon me, talk a little louder. How did, how did Mountain Gardens begin? You started in 1972? Right. So when did, yeah, uh, yeah how, how did that be, happen? How did what happen? Well, uh, how did you get the land, and where is it? Okay, so I lucked into uh, 2.8 acres of land in western North Carolina. As it happens, it's right at the adjoining the National Forest at the foot of the tallest mountains in North Carolina. Uh, I was very, very lucky or blessed or whatever. Uh, I moved down to North Carolina after I got home from the Peace Corps. I spent a few years thinking about going back to college and studying anthropology so I could go back and study these very, very interesting tribal people I had been living with. Until finally I realized I didn't want to go back to school. I just wanted to live like that. I wanted to live, you know, these people build their own houses. They grow their own food. They don't have very much money, but they seem very healthy and relatively content. And they have very... Uh, well-functioning society. Where I was, they lived in longhouses, so an entire village of 100 or more people would live under one roof. Uh, it was pretty cool. It was very exotic. 
you know, I fell in love with it, as anybody would at uh, <laughs> age 25, probably, who was looking for alternatives in this world. Uh, more and more, many of the Peace Corps people that went over there went native, as they say, as did I, uh, because it was just so appealing. Uh, so after I finally realized I didn't want to go back to college, then some neighbors of mine, I was living in Detroit at the time, were moving down to North Carolina. There was a little craft commune and they were moving down this area because there's a whole lot of crafts going on because of a neighborhood, uh, a major uh, craft school called Penland School of Crafts is very nearby and there's lots of crafts people settling in this area. So I said, yeah, I'll be tagging along with you. I want to get out of the city. So I tagged along with them. Like most of these 60s communes, it only lasted a couple of years and then fell apart. And but by the way, then I was really uh, enamored of this area. And so I started looking around for land. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a car. I didn't even have a driver's license. But this little thing fell into my lap. Uh, I would call it fate, but you call it whatever you want. Two point eight acres for six hundred dollars. <laughs> wow! You know, what a deal! Anyway. That was uh, that was the way it was in '72. Nobody was moving in around here. Everybody was moving out. There was vacant houses everywhere that you could have. Just for saying, can I live there and just mow the lawn? And you're, sure, go ahead. Wow. Uh, it's not like that anymore. Now this is a very popular area. Second uh, homes and stuff going on, all kinds of development. Every ridge top is being, people plow a road up there and survey it into lots and start selling them off. Because everybody wants a, a lot with a view for their second home. Things have changed a lot. But anyway, that's how I got here. That's how I got this piece of land. It had never been farmed. It was totally rocky. It was about 80% rock. It was steep and sloping. And it was all woodland. But that didn't matter to me because actually I had got down on my knees at one point and prayed to the Great Spirit to just give me a little piece of strip mine. That's all I want. Just give me a little piece of crappy land. And I'll Anything. do something with it. You know? Yeah. That was my ambition. So well, they a piece of crappy land, so to speak. Yeah. But I don't think it's crappy at all. I think it's a fabulous piece of land. Started in, and uh, one of my goals is to spend as little money as possible because my whole thing is like civilization versus Gaia. So civilization, the blood of civilization is money. To the extent that your life is tied up with money, you are part of the problem, as far as I'm concerned. So my whole goal was to have as little money as possible to accomplish my goal. So I didn't need any money. All I needed was a Mac. You know, I just set it. I I taught myself how to use a chainsaw, which is the first and biggest machine I've ever been a part of. Cut down some trees, built a log cabin. I had a Foxfire book. First thing I ever built was this log cabin. Actually, the first thing I built was a yurt to live in while I built the log cabin. But it was all uh, with as little money as possible, just like pecking away at it for 
well, it's been uh, getting on towards 50 years. Uh, and if you look on my website, you can see some videos. I've built a whole little village, so to speak, using as much as possible just the materials that are available here, clay and rocks and trees. Uh, and yeah, on and on. Joe, what kind of plants do you grow there? Well, the original concept was a paradise garden, which I define as a botanical garden of useful plants grown uh, ecologically and arranged ornamentally. So that covers a lot of ground in just a few words. So botanical garden of useful plants, that means I want to grow. So I want to make a beautiful garden. I want to make the most beautiful garden I can imagine so that I never want to go anywhere else. Uh, but I want it to be composed of useful plants so that the plants can, can basically fulfill all of my needs, theoretically, for food, medicine, all kinds of crafts, you know, fiber and dye and insecticide and whatever. Uh, it seems like you grow a lot of herbs. What got you into herbs and uh, Chinese herbs me? in particular? Yeah, well, I do grow a lot of herbs, so I also grow a lot of food. So the way I got into growing so many herbs, so I was growing all kinds of useful plants. I did a research project to try and come up with a list of the 1,000 most useful plants that I could grow. And so in the course of doing that, I looked through or read about, oh, maybe 100 different books. Everything from Tanaka Cyclopedia of Edible Plants of the World to very detailed stuff like the medicinal plants of the Ainu of northern Japan or the vegetables of the ancient Chinese, da, 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 all these things. And I annotated them all. This was before the personal computer was invented, so I did it all by hand. I just compiled these huge lists and to try and come up with the plants that had the most uses. And I looked all over the world. The first thing to do was to look for areas of similar bioclimate around the world where the plants from those areas could grow here. And then I looked at the people who lived in those areas and what plants did they compose their lives from. So it turned out to be a lot East Asia, China, Japan, and very similar to bioclimate, but also Europe and the Pacific Northwest. And I looked at the tribal peoples in all those areas and what plants did they eat? What did they use for medicine? What did they use for their craft? Et cetera, et cetera. Eventually I worked up this great big list. And then I set about acquiring these plants. So of course the, the first level would be the plants of the Cherokee Indians, which is the people who lived where I live in Western North Carolina, and there is actually quite a lot of information about the plants used by the Cherokee Indians. It's all in that uh, great book by, oh, what's that guy's name, Mormon, uh, Native American Ethnobotany. So that was a yeah. key book for me out of the 100 books or so that I consulted. He gives every tribe in the United States and every plant they use and what they use it for. Phenomenal book. I think the whole thing might be available free online, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, 
So I had those plants here or didn't, you know, I, I said about accumulating those. There were some very important native medicinals that didn't happen to be growing here, like false unicorn root and golden seal and so on. So I got a hold of those. I just set about, uh, you know, uh, collecting these plants and getting them to grow. And the whole idea of growing ecologically means to naturalize the plants so that they don't need a whole hell of a lot of work. You, know, you don't need to spend all your time taking care of some finicky plant. I'm looking for the plants that I can just put there and they will thrive. So my goal is eventually to become a hunter-gatherer in my own garden. So the, the authentic people on this planet are the hunter-gatherers. They're almost extinct now. These are the people that <laughs> they really kept the faith. You know, they didn't give in to the blandishments of civilization. They've got neighbors right next door with automobiles and whatever and whatever, and they're saying, the hell with that. We don't want that. We want to just retreat. They've retreated farther and farther into like borderline habitat, the Australian outback, you know, the Kalahari Desert. They just don't want to sign up. There's a terrific book by, uh, uh, what's his name? In Search of the Primitive. I can't remember his name right now. He says, civilization starts in conquest and persists in suppression, or some words like that. Uh, these authentic people, who lived according to nature, they have no interest in civilization. They have no interest in money. They see how it's destroying us. They see what inferior people are produced by this. They have abilities to contact nature. They get inspiration. They get actually communication with the ecosystem that we don't know anything about. We've totally lost track of how to be in touch with the planet. We've got to get it back. So what was your question? Well, it had something to do with me growing herbs. So, so I'm growing all these different herbs, useful plants, as many as I can find. And then there starts to be this thing happening, I don't know when, in the late 70s. Uh, all this interest in medicinal herbs, starting with, what's her name? Rosemary Gladstar started this group called United Plant Savers. Yeah. Because she's noticing that in America, nobody is growing medicinal herbs. We're just collecting everything out of the woods. And that was not a problem through the 30s and 40s and 50s and up into the 60s when really very, very few people were interested in medicinal herbs because the authorities that be, the medical schools and so on, were cranking out these uh, doctors who were indoctrinated with the idea that medicinal herbs were a myth that none of them were ever worked. It was all just folklore. Even as late as the 60s, they were saying ginseng was just a myth. It didn't do anything. Um, but people started uh, realizing that was bullshit and starting to use medicinal herbs, and the uh, use of them picked up quite a bit. In fact, the uh, medical establishment started losing so much money that now they're teaching medicinal herbs in. Uh, medical school uh, because they realized they were losing a hell of a lot of money to people that were abandoning the medical system and treating themselves with herbs. Uh, but uh, so, so as this interest in herbs picked up, it became evident that we just can't keep on just going out in the woods and harvesting this stuff. 
we need to start cultivating our medicinal herbs ourselves, like has done in many other countries in the world. America was pretty late on the pickup. So she started a group called United Plant Savers. So that was cool. At the same time, I got very interested in, and, and most of those plants were growing here on my property or in the adjacent national forest. I have this little two and a half acres surrounded by national forest. They're not surrounded, but on three sides. And all this stuff is here uh, in a certain amount of abundance except for a couple of things, like I said, golden seal, false unicorn root that I actually introduced and naturalized here. Uh, at the same time, I got very interested in Chinese medicinal herbs because I've always been interested in Chinese everything ever since I was little. I've been a Taoist ever since high school. Uh, Chinese poetry, Chinese history, I just have always read all that stuff. And then I stumbled into Chinese medicine by way of picking a book called Chinese Tonic Herbs by Ron Teagarden in a bookstore in a very random way, random or fake, whatever you want to call it. And it turned out that the first three chapters of this book were about Taoist religion, philosophy. And Taoist religion philosophy is the religion that, or philosophy that we need if we're going to survive on this planet. It's the philosophy that says that the whole thing is one big uh, organism, if you'd like, uh, Gaia, and we are a part of it. And our purpose in life is to figure out how to fit ourselves in. Our purpose in life is not to figure out how to change it around to make our lives better. Our purpose is to figure out how we can fit and be a part of this superorganism. The Tao, or Gaia. I call it the Gaia, they call it the Tao. In any case, so their whole medicinal system turns out to be about that. That was amazing to me. I had no idea. Uh, and in particular, they have these tonic herbs, which are health-promoting herbs. We nowadays call them adaptogens. Back when I started on all this, in the late 60s and early 70s, the term adaptogen was not even out there. That was invented by some uh, Russian researchers who basically were trying to win more gold medals at the Olympics. And they got into this whole idea of adaptogens, which help the body adapt to stress. So they are the ones who invented the rat swimming test where you throw a rat in the water and you put a stopwatch on it and see how long they can survive until it gives up. Or you give that rat some Siberian ginseng first, throw it in the water and put your stopwatch on it. And lo and behold, you can actually quantify the fact that that rat can swim quite a bit longer before it wow. gives up. Wow. And so that was when the Western medical establishment finally had to acknowledge that yes, ginseng actually does do something. It's not folklore, it's not a myth. They finally accepted. And then they had to invent a word. Well, what does it do? So they invented this word adaptogen. These are substances that help the body adapt to stress. This is a category that did not exist in traditional Western herbal medicine. 
that exists in Ayurvedic medicine, they call them Rasayanas, it exists in Chinese herbal medicine, they call them tonics, but it did not exist at all in Western herbal medicine. Even though we have adaptogenic plants, we just didn't have the concept. So that got me very, very excited. I'm trying to build this paradise garden where it's going to be full of all the plants you need for everything for life. Of course, I want to grow these things. These are these are the most important plants there are, you know. For sure, for sure. So I totally devoted myself to rounding up all these adaptogens and trying to grow them. And then uh, peripherally, I got interested in all the other Chinese herbs. Chinese herbal medicine is I um, I rely on my for my health on Chinese herbal medicine. I get Medicare. But I never use it except uh, for occasionally a new eye prescription. Uh, I have no interest in Western medical system. Chinese herbal medicine uh, for my health. And so I started growing all the different Chinese herbs. So, so I'm starting to grow all these Chinese herbs uh, quite a bit before anybody else in America is doing it. Plus, I've got all these Western native herbs. So it came evident at some point that I have probably the biggest collection of medicinal herbs in the United States, or at least the eastern United States. I don't know about the West Coast. And so then I just decided after many years of, so I always have these college classes, horticulture groups coming up to visit my gardens. And I would say year after year, somebody really needs to start a good medicinal herb nursery in America. We don't have one. And finally I decided, well, I guess it's me. So I sort of took medicinal herbs on as a specialty. That's certainly not anything that I anticipated when I first got started. I would have thought maybe fruit trees or something would be my specialty. I really like to eat a lot of fruit, but but just seeing once again it's fate or uh destiny, whatever you want to call it. So I have taken on medicinal herbs, seeds, you know, growing seeds, selling plants, especially bare root plants, because a lot of stuff's hard to generate, teaching workshops, and so on. I've just made that a specialty of mine. So can you tell us about your community apothecary, Mountain Gardens? Uh, so, so I was growing all these herbs, and... Uh, but not really doing a lot with them because I didn't get sick all that often. But mainly just selling seeds. But uh, after a while, I started thinking maybe I should really do something with all these herbs, especially since there was all of a sudden a great deal of interest in products made from fresh herbs. That started, I think, one of the impetus was uh, Gaia herbs who lives uh, fairly nearby me, Hendersonville, south of Asheville, a couple hours away. And they were making a big deal. They had a farm and a factory all on the same property. Very impressive operation, by the way. Uh, and I thought, well, geez, I can, I can make the freshest herb tinctures in America. You know, I can go out and harvest my echinacea and tincture it within a half an hour. Uh, 
I got it all right here too. So I started making uh, medicinal preparations, starting with tinctures, because I have a problem with drying herbs. My problem is I'm off the grid, so once again I'm I'm trying to be as low income as possible. Uh, and the reason for that is to have my project be as relevant to as many people as possible. I would like my project to be relevant to impoverished third world people, you know, because it doesn't, as much as possible, my whole project does not revolve around having money. It's just like working with what's available on the piece of land. So I started off making tinctures, but then I got into all the other things you can make. I got really into 19th century pharmacy. I started buying eclectic books and old U.S. pharmacopoeias from the 1890s and so on, back at a time when everything was being made. So back in the day, you could walk into a pharmacy, and it had shelves and shelves of dried herbs on the shelf, and the pharmacist could make anything you wanted. Tinctures, pills, lozenges, liniments, lotions, you know, a hundred different things. He could make them right there in the shop using not very advanced equipment, using the kind of equipment that we can have in our own home kitchens. Uh, that's of course changed dramatically now. Everything is like super high tech. But back in the day, and not that long ago, 100 years ago, the pharmacist could take those herbs and make you uh, 50 or 60 different medicinal herb preparations right there at his counter. And that's oh, the that. start of stuff I started to do, uh, figuring out how many different things I could make from these herbs that I was harvesting on my property. So we started making tinctures and medicated oils and salves and um, medicinal honey pills, and a bunch of different things. And so I don't, uh, personally, I am very averse to giving medical advice to anyone. I refuse to do it. Uh, I could have, you know, buses full of people parked up outside my door if I was willing to do that. But I don't. I'm not willing to do that. But I do have a really big library of information about medicinal herbs. So I am very averse to money, as I said earlier. Uh, but I do make money from time to time from the things that I do. And there's three things I'm okay about spending money on. A, plants, B, books, and C, tools. That's like me. Say what? Same here. So these are three things that the books can be lent out, the tools can be lent out, the plants can be multiplied. These are not things that you consume. These are things that you can share. So I have a great big library of books about herbs. I have a pharmacy, a quite extensive pharmacy at this point. It's got like 150 or 200 Chinese herbs dried. It's got several hundred uh, single herb tinctures that we make either from our property or from uh, things that we wildcraft. And then I've got a whole another line of Chinese herb tinctures formulas tinctures 
And so between that, I set up what I call a self-help herb pharmacy. So people can come in here and they can read up on their health. So back in the day when I used to get sick, which is not very often, I would go to the health food store, I would go to the library, I'd pick out some books about herbs and read up on what my problem was. And then I'd go over to the herb section, I'd buy some herbs. So basically, that's what I've set up, except much, much, much better. I've got a vastly much better library. I've got a vastly much better collection of herbs. And so you can come in here for self-treatment and read up on your problems. You can take either the Chinese track or the Western track. I've got both the books and the herbs for both of those. Figure out what you need. So I do not give any medical advice, but I do provide bibliographic assistance. If people come in with a, some kind of health problem, I say, hey, look, read this. Look, read this. I'll open the book to the right page. Read this. You know, and then you decide what you want. I'm not going to take responsibility for your health. I don't have any medical training. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit up late at night and sweat whether I told you the right thing or not. Mm -hmm. That's your problem. I'm just going to provide you with a bunch of resources, more resources than you're going to be able to find anywhere else. Mm. But you use them yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's why self-help herbal pharmacy. So cool. So Joe, you've been at your garden for 50 years. How has climate change affected your gardening? Oh, uh, right. So... The biggest thing I'm noticing is the wind. The wind gets worse every year. I built my little village in the woods, essentially. <clears throat> I would not do it again. Uh, trees are falling over. I, fortunately, I have a young man who comes and assists me for almost free, very low cost, an arborist. I've had a couple of arborists here helping me deal with this problem that I built all my buildings under these trees, which are no longer reliable. I mean, I'm very sorry. It's a tragedy. But that's the reality of it, is that the wind is picking up every year. Stuff is busting off. Stuff is blowing over. As far as the climate change, it used to go to 10 below every winter, sometimes 15 below, and it's not gone below zero. In the past 10 years, it's working its way up towards a minimum of, minus of plus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're definitely having warming, for better or for worse. I don't know. You know, the best thing really is to have everything freeze and have a lot of snow cover like you got in New England, and then I'll come back in the spring. We don't have that. Well, we have this crazy oscillating business where in February, even, it can go up to 60 degrees and stuff starts spreading out because it's already had its minimal uh, chilling requirement. And then a week later, it's going down to 20. It's just like exhausting trying to deal with what happens in the spring of stuff sprouting out and then being threatened with freezing back. I think my... Uh, my idea of the worst uh, possible, uh, what do you say, agriculture operation one might have 
in Western North Carolina with B2A, B2BA, Siberian ginseng farmer. So Siberian ginseng is this hugely valuable uh, adaptogen. The Russians give it to all their cosmonauts, their Olympic athletes, everybody in a high stress position. It's, it was the herb that they were in, investigating when they invented the word adaptogen. But it was to uh, leaf out in February if there's a spell of warm weather, and it's totally tender. It's absolutely susceptible to the first frost that comes along. And starting in February, we've got probably 20 more frosts coming, you know. Uh, it's nuts around here. The same thing with, say, apricots, almonds. You can buy a hardy apricot. You can buy Hall's hardy almond. The other hardy. But they're going to bloom in February. You got a zip chance of getting an apricot or a prunus mume, umaboshi plum, any of those things. So, and it's all just gotten worse because of climate change. So, climate change is affecting me very much. We're just trying to adapt as best we can. So, what is your apprenticeship program like? Well, it kind of fizzled out last year. I'm hoping maybe by this year it'll come back to life. Uh, the idea is, I typically, what I like now is about six full-time apprentices and maybe another two or three short-term like whoopers. Keeps life interesting. Uh, I've got enough shelters for that. And it's... Uh, Six hours a day, three in the morning, three in the afternoon, five days a week, so 30 hours a week. I provide housing, ideally, uh, not super high quality housing, but they're shelters. Uh, and I buy the groceries. Other than what we can grow, ideally, the goal is to grow all of our own food. We're still working towards that. Uh, so it's room and board for 30 hours a week. And the plan is, the noise work out, the plan is that we all work together for three hours in the morning. And in the afternoon, people work for three hours on some specialty that they're interested in. Maybe it's wild food plants, maybe it's vegetable garden, maybe it's herb, middle herb cultivation, maybe it's herb processing and products in the herb shop, apothecary, and so on. Maybe it's bees, maybe it's mushrooms, there's a lot of different things that are possible, you know, that people can specialize in. So that is the herb program, the apprenticeship uh, program as it stands. Are you looking for apprentices next year? I'm hoping to. Everything's cool. up in the air, as you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm taking applications. I've got a couple of really great folks applied. So far, I'm 78 years old, so at some point, not too distant future, I'm hoping to turn this whole thing over to uh, some kind of community uh, trust fund situation, which will be a consensus-based community of the people who live here. Um, but unfortunately, I am rather extended. I haven't really got the energy myself to put that together. I'm really hoping that somebody will show up 
who has that kind of knowledge to help me put this thing together, set up a legal framework, and so on to, to pass this thing on to because my uh, I'm definitely on the downhill side of the peak of my powers. I was in a car wreck a few years ago that took a lot out of me. I'm, you know, I'm functioning, but not at a super high level at this point. Uh, but that's the plan or the hope. Okay, we'll put that out on the uh, show notes so people can apply. Yes, you can check um, out my website, mountaingardensherbs.com. There's a, a page you can click on called Apprenticeships. And let me know if you're interested. Send a letter. Tell me about yourself and your experience, your work experience, and the things you're interested in, what you hope to accomplish while you're here, etc. That'd be great. Cool. Do you have any advice for young uh, people starting out? Do you have any advice for young people starting out on this path? Uh, well, you just have to get a piece of land. Uh, and you don't even have to own it. You know, you might get yourself into a communal situation where there's some land uh, that you can feel confident sharing. And uh, that's really all you need. That and your personal desire. All you need is a digging stick, for Christ's sake. I had a guy lived here. He built himself a, a dome out of saplings and clay for 100 bucks, and lived in it for 10 years. You don't need, people have this illusion that somehow you need money to get started. You do not need money. You do not need money for anything. In fact, money is just going to screw you up. Uh, you want to just attach your life to what's out there, to all this piece of land. So how, how have you been able to meet your needs with your garden? Uh... Well, various ways. Uh, I mean, I do earn some money. Uh, in fact, I might do better if I never got into the Minnesota, but the Minnesota do generate a fair amount of income. My goal really is for us to grow all the food that we need for eight or 10 people living here. Uh, but we haven't really successfully accomplished that yet, but we're definitely in reach of that. We have enough land now cleared, I think, to do that. It's just a matter of having the right people come here. But in the meantime, I generate some income by uh, selling seeds. Actually, I don't generate any income from selling seeds because I turned that over to one of my apprentices. So he does all the seeds and he keeps all the money. We sell plants. That's a big source of income, although this year, it kind of fizzled. We always sold a lot of plants at the Asheville Herb Festival and another event called Medicines for the Earth. So that was about a third of my income from the year, but both, both of those were canceled this year because of COVID. And then I taught a lot of workshops. Uh, I had a workshop or a plant walk almost every weekend, and they were quite popular. That was $50 for a half-day workshop or $100 for all-day workshop or $25 for a plant walk. And I was doing one or another of those every weekend. And that was bringing up quite a lot of money, but I canceled all that for this year because of the virus. 
so this year my in, income is pretty much restricted to selling tinctures. We set up, all the buildings are closed. The garden's open to the public, but all the buildings are closed. Uh, but we set up a little, in a little garden shed. Beside my driveway, we set up a little shop to sell medicinal herb tinctures. That's like all kinds of immune boosting, antiviral, and then we've also got a lot of stuff for depression, anxiety, insomnia, mental clarity, longevity, energy, etc. And it's very popular. Uh, I live in a neighborhood that where there's lots of people who like herbal medicine. So that's my income at the moment, but my expenses are so low. My only uh, fixed expenses are my county taxes once a year, that's about $1,500, I think. And then I pay out about $100 a month for internet, telephone, website. And then there's expenses involved in having a vehicle, which I hardly ever drive anymore, but I gotta pay, you know, uh, registration and insurance and so on. But that's it. That's all my expenses. I don't have any, I don't pay for any utilities. I'm off the grid. I have gravity water. I heat with wood. Um, my expenses are very low. And then I have to buy whatever food I can't manage to grow. The key is uh, low, having a low overhead. Right. So uh, what I can generate equals what I'm expending at this point in time. And that's, you know, I think that's the key of the whole thing is just like look at what you're spending money on and figure out a way to transfer that over to Gaia, over to the natural world. Can you talk to us about the difference between work and play and doing and not doing? Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. That's the key of the whole thing really basically is uh, – I say work is whatever you're doing when you'd rather be doing is something else. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of effort you're expending. Uh, you know, I talk about that in my Paradise Gardening essay on the website. If you, uh, like tennis can be entertainment if you're just playing for fun or it can be work if you're some kind of professional and you're having to practice all day long and, you know, you know I can work it. Uh, so the whole idea of trying to get back to what is the natural human niche, uh, which was being a hunter-gatherer. They just kind of wandered around out in the natural environment, enjoying themselves and picking up some food here and there as they went along. So we can't really be exactly hunter-gatherers right now anymore because there's too many people on this planet plus we screwed it up pretty bad uh it took you know even the best of times it took like a square mile per person it depends of course on what you're talking about what kind of environment you're talking about uh but it took a lot of land for a person to be a hunter gatherer so the whole idea of my paradise gardening is to enrich the environment to where you need much less land, but pack the environment with more and more edible, medicinal, et cetera, useful species 
so that you can become a hunter-gatherer on an acre instead of a square mile. That's that's my goal, really. That's what I'm after. And what goes along with a hunter being a hunter-gatherer is an entirely different attitude towards the world. Like you are being the recipient of nature giving all this stuff, nature as the mother, as opposed to being this guy who's coming in and slashing and burning and cutting down and plowing up and like forcing nature, like Thoreau says, make the world say be. You know, I don't want to make the world say be. I want to let the world say what it wants to say and live off of that. There's a lot to it. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot of philosophy behind it. It's a whole utterly different way to think about how to live on Earth than agriculture. Uh, what I'm trying to uh, invent, if you will, is something that's more or less the opposite of agriculture. Cool. So what's the difference between paradise gardening and permaculture? Well, it's more or less the same thing. I came up with my ideas at just about the same time that Bill Mollison came to America for the first time. I would say some differences is <clears throat> I'm much more interested in the aesthetic aspect of it, in making a beautiful garden, which I think is really important to our psychological states of mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm very much interested in Chinese gardens in terms of how they affect the spirit. Uh, in terms of the Chinese, the word for landscape is basically identical to the word for spirit, like Spirit, inspiration comes from the landscape, from their perspective. And that's what I want. I want to have a garden that inspires me. Inspire means the spirit within. It's the same as the word for enthusiasm, which means the God within. You know, I want to tap into that. And then I think I have a lot more em emphasis than permaculture does on the political aspects, on the non-money aspects, on the fact that we're trying to create an alternative to the money economy. I think permaculture touches on that, but maybe not too deeply. Right. Uh, but basically, as far as the net result, what I'm doing is very much like permaculture, and I definitely take advantage of all the things that Morrison has taught us, and all, and his uh, his apprentices, his acolytes. Uh, there's a huge amount of good information there. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for being on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for contacting me. Of course. And uh, send me a link uh, whenever you put it up, and I'll check it out. Okay. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Good night. Bye. Bye.